Last week, I was planning on finishing the Gospel of Matthew, but we didn't make it through all the interpretive challenges. So we're going to go through the rest of them today. Um, hopefully we finish them this morning. Um, there's a chance we might finish at like 30 minutes in. And if that happens, I want to grab your Bibles and I want to walk you through the Bible so you can see what the Bible says about the coming kingdom from Genesis through Revelation. Okay, so let's just jump right in. We're starting in Matthew 12. We're going to be looking at the unpardonable sin. Anybody ever heard of the unpardonable sin? Anybody ever had questions on the unpardonable sin? All right. Let's go to Matthew 12. The challenge is actually in verses 30 through 31, but I, I would actually 31 through 32, but I'd like to start reading in verse 22. Um, do I have a volunteer who would like to read 22 through 32? Mike, go ahead. Then a demon possessed, so how far? 32. Okay. Then a demon possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus and he healed him, so that the mute man spoke and saw. All the crowds were amazed and were saying, This man cannot be the son of David, can he? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man cast out demons only by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and any city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? If I by Beelzebub cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? For this reason I will be your judge. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless the, he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy, blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. Thank you, Mike. All right, so there's two questions here. Or the, the challenge is, is this referring to a historical situation only? Or is it possible for you today to commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Well, let's take a look at this. Let's first try to determine what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. We mentioned this kind of last week when we talked about this situation. Verse 22, Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and he healed him so that the mute man spoke. You have a man that Matthew says was demon-possessed. This man was blind, and he was mute. And he comes to Jesus, and Jesus heals him. He heals him by, one, casting out the demon, and two, by making him able to see and making him able to speak. And all the crowds were amazed, saying, This man cannot be the son of David. Who is the son of David? Why would they say that? He's the coming king. This couldn't be the Messiah. Could it be? Why would they say that? Well, if you go back to chapter 11... Uh, 
verse, let's start verse 2. Now when John, now when John, while in prison, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word by the disciples and said to him, Are you the expected one, or shall we look for someone else? I hear you're doing these cool things. Are you the guy we're waiting for? Because I'm over here in prison, and you should be busting me out right now. Jesus sends his disciples back to him and says, Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. He's doing the works of the Messiah. Everybody knows that this was a genuine miracle, even the Pharisees. Verse 24, but when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man cast out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Nobody denied the miracle. Everybody affirmed this was a genuine miracle. These miracles had a purpose. What was the purpose of the miracles? Why did Jesus and the apostles perform miracles? To prove the message. Yeah, it was an affirmation of the message. Right. So we have the prophecies of the Old Testament that said what the Messiah would do, and he's doing them. And these miracles prove the message. And it was, it's, it brings more condemnation when you watch the miracle occur and you still reject the messenger. Uh, back in chapter 11 again, verse 20, notice how he describes these cities. He says, Then he began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles were done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which the miracles had, uh, which had occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will not be exalted in heaven, will you? You will descend to Hades, for if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Nevertheless, I say to you, that it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you. That must have hurt to hear him say that to them. But notice they are not guilty of the unpardonable sin here. Just because they merely rejected the miracle. The issue here is not just that the miracles occurred. The issue here is what they did with the miracle and what they said about the miracle. They didn't just say, that's not a miracle. They turned around and said, that miracle was performed by Satan. That's the issue. And that's why in verse 31, Jesus turns back and says, Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. It's connected to the idea of calling the miracle being done by God and saying it was done by Satan. We can prove that if you hold your finger there, go to Mark chapter 3. Mark 3 gives the same parallel account. Verse 28. Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter, 
But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And why was he saying this, verse 30? Because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not just some mild utterance that you make on a random occasion. It is looking at a genuine work of God that is undeniable and turning around and accusing that of being of Satan. There's something else we also need to consider. This blasphemy was not done by the people. The crowds here were not the ones who committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. The crowds were not accused of that. Even the crowds who rejected the works of Christ were not accused of the blasphemy of the Spirit. Who was accused of this? Pharisees. The people who had a modern-day equivalent of PhDs in theology. These guys knew their Old Testament. And so you have two things here that are working against them. One, you have the fact that they have the knowledge that this is a genuine miracle they cannot deny. They affirm it as being a miracle. And two, you have their amazing knowledge of the Old Testament. Of all people, they should know better. And yet they still turn around and say, this is not the Holy Spirit. This is Satan. You know what's amazing about that? Every miracle that he says in the, in the, in the Word is a miracle that no man could have ever done. Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's no way. No one had ever done what he's doing. And that's why the people responded the way that they did. Is this the son of David? So let me ask you a question. It's the heart of our interpretive challenge. Can this happen to you today? Or does this happen to you today? Which I don't understand the full question. Miracles? Yeah. Well, here's what I'm asking. If, if we were a room full of unbelievers, let's just take the question of being believer, unbeliever out of the question, because I think everyone, anyone here think a believer can commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Okay. So let's just talk about unbelievers and simplify the question. Can an unbeliever have this happen? Can they be in this situation? If they're not chosen, they can't do it. Okay. If, 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 they're, if they're going to be a, a, a sinner and, 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 and their faith is eternal, they could. Yeah. Okay, well, let me ask you this way. Does an unbeliever have the same kind of knowledge that the Pharisees have? No. No. Pharisees were really well-educated. They knew their Old Testaments extremely well. This is not something that happens out of ignorance. Yes? Who's the guy that you said that, that totally recanted his Christianity and now he's trying to... Bart Ehrman. Yes. Yeah. So what if my name was Bart? Could, could that affect me? I know my gospel. I know it inside and out, upside and down, but I think it's a fraud now. Yeah, but 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 that's not the context of this. Okay. This is not talking about merely turning away from the faith. This is talking about having knowledge and seeing a genuine miracle that you cannot deny, and turning around and saying that miracle is a work of Satan. So how do you explain the first John? The end of first John, the sinner. Yeah, that that's talking about. I think that's talking about believers, because okay. he's talking about brothers. And that's talking about 
a believer continues in sin and God, as a judicial punishment upon them, takes their life, that's also an act of grace because he's not allowing them to build up more sin. Mm -hmm. But here, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is specifically regarding people who have knowledge and they have seen genuine miracles that they cannot deny. And they call those works works of Satan. Can you, if you were an unbeliever today, do that? Is that possible for you today? For me today? Yeah. No, no. For an unbeliever. No. For an unbeliever. Is that possible? Well, if he have to see a genuine miracle from God and then deny it, it's not possible today. <laughs> yeah, you, you have a situation here where this is connected directly to the miracles. Yeah. And the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit assumes... Right, you'd have to be able to recognize the miracle. And you'd have to be able to say without doubt, like they did, this is a miracle, and this miracle was performed by Satan. Can anyone do that today? My answer to that is no, because there are no miracles like that occurring today. What about after Christ comes back? I think you could at that point. Yeah, when you get into the tribulation, you see miracles start to occur again. I think, yes, you probably could do that or unbelievers could but today my answer to this is this is a historical situation only not a continuing possibility now if you're charismatic you might go with b if you believe miracles are still occurring today but i've watched tbn before just a little confession and those <laughs> miracles are not anywhere near what this is talking about does that make sense I think by taking it this way and just looking at it this way, it helps relieve a lot of people's consciences because they're like, oh no, have I committed the unpardonable sin? If you just understand the context, it really clears it up quite a bit. All right? Is that helpful? All right. Any questions? Comments? All right. How about all the miracles so-called in the Catholic religion? Well, the the thing about marrying apparitions is that when you look at those apparitions and you see what the apparitions say, um, Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will point you to me. These marrying apparitions don't point people to Christ, they point people to Mary, which I would say means that's probably demonic rather than from heaven. It's not, a, yeah. It's not a miracle. That really is, I think, a miracle done by Satan. That is something that Satan is doing rather than God. Um, so, all right. Next interpretive challenge. The parables of the kingdom. Now, we're in chapter 12, and we talked last week. Chapter 12 is an important chapter in the book of Matthew. Up until this point, the kingdom is being offered to who? To the Jews, right? Yeah, and he's doing it publicly. And not in riddles. He's not doing it in parables. Chapter 10, uh, he sends out the disciples. Chapter 10, verse 5, These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them, Do not go in the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. They were sent out, and their message was to be to Israel, into Israel only. You get to chapter 11. You have the unrepenting cities that we looked at a few minutes ago, verses 20 through 24. Verses 25 through 30, the message changes. It's no longer come to me, Israel. It's who? 
chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me all, everyone. If you're heavy laden, if you're carrying a burden of sin, come to me. Chapter 12, Jesus says he's the Lord of the Sabbath. Verse 17 of chapter 12. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break off, and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory, and in his name... The Gentiles will hope. The message is now going outside of Israel. It's going outside of Israel because Israel rejects their king. And we saw that here in chapter 12, 22 through 32. They rejected their king, and now their king is going to go to the Gentiles and proclaim the kingdom. But to do that, he's going to bring judgment on the nation of Israel. And he's going to bring judgment on Israel by changing the way he teaches. Chapter 13. That day, Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea, and large crowds gathered to him. So he got into a boat and sat down, and the whole crowd was standing on the beach. And he spoke many things to them in parables. A parable is a story that has one point to it. But to the crowd, he doesn't tell them the point of the story. He leaves it as a parable. And you see that here because in verse 4, he begins to tell them the parable of the sower. And then he explains it later when the crowd is gone. But I want you to notice something. Even the disciples were confused by the switch. The disciples turned back to Jesus and they were thinking, wait a minute. All this time, you've been speaking openly and very clearly to us, and now you've changed. Now you're giving us parables. Chapter 13, again, look at um, verse 10. And the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? Why have you changed your method? You used to teach and preach in very simple ways for us to understand, and now you've changed. And Jesus answered them, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. This is to hide information. They are not to know. Jump down verse 14. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. This is judgment. They have rejected their king. And because they've rejected their king, he is now going to take that message to other people. In Matthew 13, we have these parables. You have the, the explanation of the sower in verse 18. The tares among the wheat, the mustard seed, the leaven... All the way through chapter 13 is a bunch of parables, and there is something unique about these parables. Um, verse 19. 
when anyone hears the word of the kingdom. Verse 24. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared. Verse 31. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Verse 33. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven. Verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden. Verse 45. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. Verse 47, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet. What are all these parables centered on? The kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is the same as the kingdom of God. Just another phrase for the same idea of the kingdom. And that's where our interpretive challenges focus. What does he mean when he's using these parables? What are these parables intended to teach us about the kingdom? There are some who claim that these parables are to correct the kingdom concept. The Jews just have a misunderstanding about what the kingdom is going to be. And so Jesus is going to explain to them all these perceptions that you have from the Old Testament about what the kingdom will be. The parables here are intended to relieve you of that misconception and help you to understand what the kingdom actually is. Because your understanding was faulty. And that could be corrected in the sense of, well, in the Old Testament it was a literal, physical kingdom, and now it's become a spiritual one, or any other way they want to do it. There's another idea that says it's to reveal the mystery kingdom. This is from the passage we read a few minutes ago out of Matthew 12. Uh, I need to find the verse. There it is, verse 28. But if I cast... No, that's not it. I've lost my verse. That's not good. Yes, thank you. Thank you. I'm in the wrong chapter. Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Thank you. The mysteries of the kingdom. And so this view says there is a mystery kingdom, a kingdom that has not been revealed in the Old Testament a kingdom they don't know about yet. And so now Jesus needs to tell them about this mystery kingdom, and they point to Matthew 13, 11. You guys see any problem with that? What problems do you see with that? He wasn't telling the parables to his disciples. He was telling them to the Jews and then explaining them to his disciples so it's not there to reveal. Yeah, only and also, the disciples have been granted the, the, okay. well, and, to know the mysteries. And okay. didn't the disciples get the Holy Spirit when he came back after death? Uh-huh. So they didn't have the Holy Spirit to guide them. We do. Okay. It also says he are, they already know the mysteries. Two has been granted. It's already been granted. It's been granted. It's not going to be granted. Good. There's something else I want to point out. Notice how they phrased it here. The mystery kingdom. Is that what the text says? That preposition is important. It's mysteries concerning the kingdom, not mystery a mystery kingdom. There's not some unknown kingdom that nobody knows about. These are mysteries, things that have not been revealed about the kingdom that he is now revealing. That's what the Greek word mysterion means. And that's the final view. To reveal reveal truths about the kingdom. These are just merely teaching truths about the kingdom. 
and they are for his disciples. Why? Because the other people don't need to know they're not part of the kingdom. Make sense? I think that's the right answer. Any questions? All right. Matthew 16. And I love that this is Reformation Day. <laughs> this is awesome. So if I, if I go a little after the Catholic Church today, I'm sorry, but not really. Sorry, not sorry, yeah. <laughs> Matthew 16, this is a well-known passage, um, but I do want to read it because it's important that we get the context here. Matthew 16, verse 13, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. All right. This is the passage that the Roman Catholic Church bases the entire papacy on. The papacy stands or falls right here. Who do you say that I am? Peter responds, you are the Christ. You are the King. You are the Messiah. You are the one that has been promised. The Son of the living God. And Jesus responds to him, blessed are you. Now I want you to know why did Peter why did who did he ask this question to? He asked it to all of them. Who answered for all of the disciples? Peter. Right. Peter answered. And so the Catholic Church will say, well, look, Peter's taking authority. Peter's taking a leadership role. He must be the preeminent apostle. So Peter answers, and Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon. Because you came up with this on your own. No, you didn't come up with this on your own. The Father revealed it to you. And the Catholic Church would then turn around and say, See, God speaks through the Pope. He speaks through Peter. He's not speaking through any of the other apostles. I'm just telling you the, the argument here. I'm just regurgitating. I'm not teaching here. See, he's, he's speaking for God. Verse 18, and I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. This is where our interpretive challenge comes. Some will say, well, who is this rock? Well, is it Peter? Is it the apostles and their apostolic testimony? Is it Peter's confession? Or is it Christ? I've got a couple for Christ. It's also the cornerstone. When okay. he says, I'm going to build this rock on you, that's the cornerstone. Okay. Well, there's a couple things here that we need to look at. First of all, he says, and I say to you that you are Peter. Who is he talking to? Who is the you here? Peter. It's Peter. He's talking to Peter, right? And somebody, Greg just said it. Petrus. Petrus and Petra. He says, blessed are you, Petrus. 
and upon this Petra I will build my church. If he wanted it to be the final one himself, he would not have used the play on words. He used the play on words intentionally. He could have said, you are Peter, but I will build my church upon myself. So I don't think it's the final one, even though there is truth that he is the rock of the church. And I don't think it's letter B, the apostle of the apostolic testimony. Any ideas why I don't think it's letter B? The apostles don't say anything here. There's no testimony here that he could be referring to, so it's not that one. So I think the only two possibilities are A and C. Okay. Let's deal with this Pope thing real quick. Is this talking about Peter being the first Pope? If you assume that it's Peter, which I think you can make the argument from the grammar, if you assume it's Peter, does this mean the papacy is true? No. I think it was D.A. Carson who said, his opinion is it's unequivocally Peter, but that doesn't mean there's a papacy. Look again. He says, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. That last verse there, verse 19, is where they say the Pope gets his power. That here the granting of the keys to Peter is the grant of universal supreme power in the church. And they say that the Pope now, in Peter, has the ability to bind and loose, that is, to forgive and to not forgive sin. How do they do the parallel verse with Matthew 18, 18, with, you know, the, the idea of church discipline and, like, the, the authority given to church leaders, elders, to yeah. carry out the authority of Christ in the church? Yeah, they, they say that that, yes, it's the same grant, but they say Peter is exclusively given this power here and then later it's given to the other disciples in Matthew 18 but I'm glad you I'm glad you're thinking there because I'm about to go there in just a moment but I want you to note something here they say that it was to Peter and to Peter alone who was given the grant of the keys here right I want you to look they say it happened here but I want you to read the text I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Has he granted him the keys of the kingdom of heaven? It's future tense, and even in the Greek, it's a future tense verb. I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. I just haven't done it yet. The Catholic Church would claim that Pope Francis today receives his authority because it was passed on from Peter to the other successors of Peter. The popes are the successors of Peter in what they call the primacy. This position as being the elevated one, right? The, the highest of the apostles. They are not apostles, they're the successors of the apostles, and they pass the keys on from Peter to the first pope, to the next pope, to the next pope, and all, right? But I want you to note something. I will give you. That pronoun is singular. And whatever you, singular, bind, on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. It's a singular pronoun. 
if it's a singular pronoun, there is no apostolic succession for the papacy. Because the keys were given to Peter, the text says nothing about Peter passing those keys to somebody else. But if the keys were given to him then, that's when the infallibility started. So, Explain the denial three times. Yeah, not only that, but then later on, just a few verses later, verse 23, get behind me, Satan. <laughs> How quickly that occurred. Yeah. So if he's infallible, yeah. So if he's infallible, <laughs> yeah. Give me those back. <laughs> Matthew eighteen, we have this parable on, not the parable, the teaching on church discipline. Verse eighteen, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Here, the Catholic Church will even tell you that this is talking about. The power being granted to all of the apostles. So in chapter 16, we have the grant promised. Chapter 18, the promise is fulfilled and the power is granted. And it's here where the Catholic Church will say, this is where we have the power to make decisions and God in heaven affirms the decision of the Pope. And again... You have to just read the text. And if you just read the text, you'll find out that that is completely backwards. It's not that the Pope makes a decision and then God goes, yeah, that seems like a good idea. That's not how this happens. Read the text. Matthew 18, verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth, present tense, shall have been bound in heaven. The binding in heaven was done already. When the church, acting under biblical mandates and following and lead, being led by the Spirit, conducts church discipline, and the church says, we are going to remove this person from membership, they are not making a decision and then turning to God and saying, do you approve? No, what this passage says is that God has already made that decision in heaven, and you are merely affirming what God has already said. This is not a grant of universal supreme power to anyone other than God himself. So when you read Matthew 16, even if you come to the conclusion that the rock is Peter, and I think there is plenty of evidence that you could say that Peter and upon this rock, the closest subject there would be Peter himself. The play on words points to Peter. I don't have any problem if you want to say the rock is Peter. In fact, the early church believed it was Peter. Tertullian said it was Peter. But you have to read Tertullian because they'll quote Tertullian a little snippet and they won't give you the rest of the quote because Tertullian said, Peter is the rock of the church through which the church would be built. And he was talking about Peter's preaching and he points to Acts 2 and the day of Pentecost and how 3,000 were converted in a single day. That's how the early church viewed it. And there was variants of that. So if you want to say it's Peter, that's fine. The other possible grammar, the grammar says there's one other possibility, and that would be Peter's confession. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Upon that confession, the church would be built. All who claim that Christ is the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of God, that is the confession upon which the church is built. Both of those are possibilities. I think C is a better answer. But I won't be dogmatic if you want to go with A. What yes? about where later on Jesus says, uh, 
you can't enter. Somewhere it says no one enters the kingdom of heaven without knowing that Jesus is Lord. Mm -hmm. At that point in time, Jesus, uh, Peter confessed that Jesus was Lord. Okay. Does that have anything to do with what we're talking about? Yeah, so that would be the confession. Okay. That would be the confession of Christ. And that's right. that's the confession upon which the church is built. Right. Okay. okay. All right. Any other questions there? Yeah. Yes. To discipline, to um, to determine if someone has repented or not, yeah. To tell to tell someone with some confidence, you're forgiven by God, right? Um, but that is not a universal grant in the sense of you have supreme jurisdiction in the church. Yes. Yeah, I, I think it's also probably worth pointing out. I believe with that authority, with the binding of this, it's not necessarily Christ giving. Uh, like some supernatural ability to the church elders to say you're not a believer right it's more of an external like the, we, we don't have there's enough evidence where we can't affirm you as a believer and therefore out of good to the church we're, yeah we're moving here. wonderful yes because people do mis misunderstand yeah like, you know, yeah determining salvific position yeah. Even when we talk about church discipline putting someone out of the church we are not saying we know infallibly that you're not a believer right. All we're saying is you are acting like an unbeliever and we're going to treat you as an unbeliever until you change your course. So, good point. Yes? I was going to ask, um, it's not uncommon a lot of times in Scripture to see like one figure or one person representing the mm -hmm. group. And so is that also potentially a possibility like when so much when talks about Christ or Adam or David? that one person is more significant and I think we do see that Peter is more significant mm -hmm. than some of the other disciples and so is there a sense that he's representing and so yeah. if you take A that doesn't mean it doesn't apply it's just he is the mouthpiece of the original apostles yeah. and Paul's ministry is more to the Gentiles mm. and is, is it also possible that 18 and 19 are a little different where I, I do think Acts 2 means a lot that Peter was preaching and the Holy Spirit came upon and that began the church. Mm -hmm. And so the church was built on Peter with his preaching and his ministry. Is, is verse 19 potentially separate and to all the apostles? So 18 is specifically to Peter and 19, um, I know he still says, I will give you. Mm -hmm. But verse 18 is one sentence. He's talking to Peter about Peter and says, talks about the church and then yeah. he talks about the yeah, I think verse 19 in Matthew 16 is Jesus turning to all the disciples, just like in Matthew 18. I think that is a plural unity. So he's talking about one group. We are one class. and so. But I do agree with you that Peter does take a prominent role among the disciples. Um, the early church would have seen him as the first among equals, kind of like elders today. We have one teaching elder. He's the, fir he's the first among equals. He's the most prominent. And so I do agree that Peter does take a very prominent role among the disciples, but that is not to say he's a pope. And Peter Peter did not purport himself as the pope. He said, I am your fellow elder, right? He, he didn't even say, I'm an apostle. What? I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. You said Peter did not, you probably just said, wear a funny hat. Yeah, sorry. I was going to say that. But Amen. I back. Okay, <laughs> we, we need to keep moving here. We can, we can go on this all day, but we need to keep moving. All right, the next one, the Olivet Discourse, Matthew 24. Through 25. There are two views here, preterist view and the futuristic view. We're going to take this pretty quick. 
basically, here's the idea. The Predator's View says that the events described in Matthew 24 and 25 were all completed in 70 AD at the destruction of the, te of the Temple in Jerusalem. They hold that position with the exception of Matthew 24, 29 through 31, which is the return of Christ. Okay? Everything else was fulfilled in 70 AD when the Romans destroyed Jerusalem. The futuristic view says that these events are describing something that will happen in the future. That one's pretty easy, right? When Christ returns. Um, I'm just going to let the cat out of the bag. I think B is the right answer. Um, let me show you what I mean by that. Go down to Matthew 24, verse 1. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Speaking of the temple, Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. What is he talking about? The old temple versus the new temple. He, he's talking about that temple in front of them is going to be destroyed. When was that done? 70 AD. Verse 3. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him. We have a different little conversation here. Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Everything that follows in Matthew 24 and 25 answer that question. What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? 70 AD was not the end of the age. And if you just read through Matthew 24, I just want to read parts of this. Tell me if this sounds like 70 AD for you. Just, um, where can we start here? Verse 6. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of war. See that you are not frightened, for these things must take place. But that is not yet the end, for nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. In various places there will be famines and earthquakes. Did all of that happen in 70 AD? No. Verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, then those who are, who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetops must not go down to get the things that are in the house. Why? Because if you go down to get your stuff, you'll be caught up in the flood. Whatever's in, whoever's in the field must not turn back to get their cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babes in those days. Why is she saying woe to the, those who are pregnant? Because if you're pregnant, it's much harder to run. It's hard to escape. Verse 21. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, or ever will. That is not talking about 70 A.D. Unless you're going to tell me the Romans sacking Jerusalem was a worldwide conflict. Which, I don't know anyone who would hold that position. Well, the greatest tribulation to date. Right. Yeah, the greatest tribulation ever. Was that the worst conflict that ever occurred in the world? And then, if you just follow the passage, he's describing perilous times. That would be the tribulation through verse 28. Verse 29, the return of Christ. Nice and easy. You don't have to jump around to try to figure out what everything is. 
parable of the fig tree. This is a parable describing the judgment that is coming in that tribulation. I just want to note verses 40 and 41. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken, one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, one will be left. That is not a rapture passage. That is a passage speaking of judgment. Please do not point to that as a rapture passage. I did that one time when I was a new believer and I got corrected for it. So don't do that. Don't be like me, okay? Matthew 25, these are parables describing the coming judgment. Uh, Matthew 25, 1 through 13 is the parable of the ten virgins. Be ready for judgment. The parable of the talents, uh, starting verse 31, the judgment itself. This is all stuff that will happen in the future. I'm speeding up because I would like to get you to the kingdom passages here. All right, any questions on this? Preterist or futuristic view? 70 AD or in the future? All right. Matthew 24, verse 34 is our next challenge. Verse 34, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. The question is, what does he mean by this generation? Some people say this generation refers to the Jewish race or people. Um, I think your Greek, the Greek word here would not work for that. I, I don't think it's talking about a race or a nationality. Uh, some people say this generation refers to a group of sinful people. Well, that would be true regardless of what people you're talking about, so that doesn't really help. <laughs> and then there are a couple of views under C, a specific generation. And I'm just going to show you what those are. The first view is the contemporary generation of Israel. So when he says all these... This, this generation will not pass. And he's talking about the people who are alive at that time. So the people at that time would see all of these events come to pass. This is the preterist view. So they would hold that the events in 70 AD would fit that. I don't think that works. The problem here is when you see all these things take place. If you read as we did, you see that this is not describing 70 AD. And multiple times he comes through here, verse 15, when you see. And I, I lost the other ones here. I don't have them marked. But multiple times you read through chapter 24, and he says, when you see, when you see, when you see. Who's he talking to? The people who are alive at that particular time. The people who see these events, they will know the end is near. And so I think this is best taken as the tribulation generation. Yes, sir. Um, I guess, I don't know, is it, I, I've seen a distinction between what they say, partial preterist versus full preterist. Like, you've got an R.C. Sproul who takes some of these positions that we're saying is preterist. Yeah. That's more of what I have heard as partial preterism, mm -hmm. specific to those particular passages, whereas the full right. preterist would even go all the way to Revelation and say every, every prophecy has already been fulfilled. It's already yeah. Been yeah, so the, the full preterist That's would say... You know, the full preterists would say that Jesus has already returned. There is a view that says that. That's obviously heretical. Most people today would be considered partial preterists um, in that they don't hold that Jesus has already returned. So if you know like Jeff Durbin, he's a post-millennialist. He would say that Matthew 24 and 25 deal with stuff that has already occurred with the exception of the return of Christ. So he would be considered a partial preterist. So good distinction. All right. Questions on the interpretive challenges? Stunned into silence. Okay. No, it's, it was good. Excellent. Okay. All right. Here's what I'd like to do. Um, I'm going to turn this off.
because I want you to grab your Bibles and we're going to do this rather quickly because we have 10 minutes. Go over to Revelation chapter 20 real quick. Is Old Testament or New? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Revelation what? 20. Yeah. Revelation chapter 20, and I, I want to just read a couple verses here. This is describing the millennial kingdom. Verse 20, uh, chapter 20, verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them. And judgment was given to them, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. This is the millennial reign of Christ. When he comes, he sits on David's throne, and he reigns as king. And people say this passage does not mean what it just said. When it says a thousand years, it doesn't actually mean literally a thousand years. And they say, well, because nowhere else in the Bible does it say anything about Jesus reigning for 1,000 years. This is the only place in Scripture we have a mention of a thousand years. And because the book of Revelation is apocalyptic, I'll discuss that when we get there, we shouldn't take it as being literal. We should take this as being figurative. And not only that, but this is the only place we have any mention of a kingdom. So Revelation 21 through 4 does not mean what it says. That's my summary. Okay. I just want to take you through the Bible and show you what the Bible says about not only the kingdom, but this coming king. And when we're done, I want you to tell me if Revelation 20 is the only place that discusses this. Go back to Genesis chapter 1. Because our discussion of the kingdom starts in Genesis chapter 1. You have to read a long way through your Bibles to get to the first references to the kingdom. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Let them rule. It's the Hebrew word mashal. Mashal means to reign as a king. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. We have a promise of a seed, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is Reformation Day, so I'll just have you note, the Catholic Church wants to make that about Mary. Mary is not in this passage. You have to change the text in order to get there. That is talking about Christ, the seed. Genesis chapter 12. We have the Abrahamic covenant. God calls a guy named Abram, and he makes some promises to him. Verse 2, And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, and make your name great. Just so you know, in Genesis chapter 6, they were men of renown, men who wanted a great name, and they were going to make it for themselves. And here, God says, Abram, I'm going to make your name great. 
I'm going to give you a great name, and you shall be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families will be blessed. In your seed, in your descendants, I'm going to bless all nations. Israel is going to become a microcosm for what God will do for all the nations of the world. And if you want to see God's grace and mercy to the world, look at Israel. Deuteronomy 18. Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. We have a promise of a coming ruler. The same seed that was promised in Genesis 3.15, the same seed that was promised to Abram, is here again promised again in Deuteronomy 18.15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. From your countrymen you shall listen to him. Deuteronomy 30. I'm not, I don't have time to read through all of these, but Deuteronomy 30, 1 through 10 describes what will happen when Israel is restored. Israel's about to go into the promised land, verse 1. So it shall be when all of these come upon you, the blessings and the curse which I have set before you, you will call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you. They're about to go into the promised land, and he tells them, look, you're going to go into the promised land, and you're not going to be obedient. And I'm going to banish you. And then he says, after I banish you, I'm going to restore you. In verses 1 through 10, he gives the restoration. Verse 3, then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and, from, and have compassion on you, and it will gather you again from all the peoples, where the Lord your God has scattered you. If your outcasts are at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord will gather your the Lord your God will gather you, and from there he will bring you back. The Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possess, and you shall possess it, and he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with your with all of your heart and with all of your soul, that you may live. He will circumcise your heart. You go into Jeremiah 33 and you find out the circumcision of the heart is talking about the indwelling of the Spirit and regeneration in the new covenant. This is a new covenant promise in Deuteronomy. Has this occurred for the Jews yet? This will occur when? When Christ returns. And if you read through the rest of that, we don't have time, you'll see more blessings, not only spiritual blessings, but physical blessings promised to Israel. 2 Samuel 7. I told you this was going to be quick. Oh, look at that. I turned right to my page. Awesome. 2 Samuel 7. We have David, this king that everybody loved, right? God's chosen man. 2 Samuel 7, verse 12. God makes a promise to David. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant, your seed, the same seed promised in Genesis 3.15, the same seed promised in Deuteronomy, the same seed that's promised here. Your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. Verse 16, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. Whose throne is it? David's. Where was David's throne? Jerusalem. I hear people today saying, well, you know, you dispensationalists have it all wrong. Jesus is reigning now. 
Well, yes, he is reigning in heaven right now, but that's not the promise made here. The promise made here is that the Messiah would reign from David's throne. Psalm 2. Is this helping? Yes. Okay. Psalm 2, verse 6. But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. This is not talking about what has already happened. This is talking about the second coming of the Messiah. Verse 8. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance to his king. He will give the nations as his inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. Has any king reigned from the ends of the earth? No, this has not happened yet. Psalm uh, 72, verse 8. Speaking of the same king, may he also rule from sea to sea and from river from the river to the ends of the earth. Psalm 72, verse 16. May there be an abundance of grain in the earth on top of the mountains. Its fruit will wave like the cedars of Lebanon and may those from the city flourish like the vegetation of the earth. Verse 19. And blessed be his glorious name forever and may the whole earth be filled with his glory. Has this happened yet? This is not. Yes, ma'am. Right. Yes. Yes. So, yes. I mean, exactly. It was not like they weren't aware of all these pieces. Right. That's why they were confused when Christ. They were frustrated be because they were being beaten down by the Romans. Yes. They didn't like being taxed and beaten by the Romans. They thought it's it's our time. Right. And, and we're going to get there. We're going to get there. That's exactly true. That is exactly true. But I want I want everyone to see that these Old Testament passages are very clear. You don't have to read something into the text to come to the idea that there is a literal kingdom. Uh, Psalm 89, verse 3. This promise to David that was made is not going to be rescinded. And we know that because that's what the Bible says. That's what God says. Psalm 89, verse 3. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your seed, your descendant, forever and build up your throne to all generations. Your throne will be built up. Isaiah 2. We are moving quick. Oh my goodness. Isaiah 2. Verse 4. You can read 1 through 4 at home. Um, and he will judge between the nations. Uh, let me back up. I need to back up. Let's start at verse 2. Now we'll come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that he may walk, we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word from the Lord 
of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. They will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Does that describe 70 AD? Does that describe a spiritual kingdom? No, it does not. Uh, you can go to Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 10. There's more blessings there. Isaiah 60, uh, 18 through 22. We don't have time. Let's go to Matthew 5. I don't want to keep you guys really late because we're already over. Matthew 5, verse 5. Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit spiritual blessings. Is that what it says? They'll inherit what? The earth. Matthew 6, verse 10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The focus is where? On earth. Matthew 8 and 9, we have Jesus performing miracles, proving he has power over nature and over disease. I do want to point you to Matthew 9, verse 27. Here we have the Jews recognizing who Jesus is. And as Jesus went out from there, two blind men followed him, crying out, saying, Have mercy on us, son of David. Matthew 15, verse 22. And a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out, saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. Same thing, 21.9, 21.15. Acts 1. This is what you brought up just a moment ago. Acts 1. Let's start in verse 3. To those he presented himself alive after his suffering, after his resurrection, by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of heaven. The apostles had 40 days with Jesus explaining the kingdom to them. This would have been the perfect time for him to say, hey guys, I'm an all-millennialist. There won't be a kingdom. Perfect opportunity. And they get through the end of the 40 days, verse 6. So when they came together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? Aren't you the Messiah? Aren't you going to kick these Romans out and give us the kingdom? Again, he should have said, you have the kingdom. The kingdom is now. It's among you. But instead, he said, it is not for you to know seasons and epochs. When am I going to bring in the kingdom? That's not for you to know. Revelation 19, real quick. I, I'm sorry, I'm over here. But I do want you to see one more thing. Revelation 19. They will say the revelation is apocalyptic, which means you should not interpret it literally. And they say that for all of the book of Revelation, except for Revelation 19, verses 11 through 19. This is the return of Christ. They understand if they say this is not literal, then they're in heresy. So this should be interpreted literally by them. But I want you to note something that this says. Jesus returns. Look down at verse 15. From his mouth came a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them. Future. That's a future tense verb. John is seeing the return of Christ, and he says in the future, from his return, he will rule what? The nations. The fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. Verse 11, I want you to note, and I saw. Verse 17, 
Then I saw. Verse 19, and I saw. Verse Chapter 20, verse 1, then I saw. Chapter 20, verse 11, then I saw. Chapter 21, verse 1, then I saw. Chapter 21, verse 2, and I saw. These little statements, and I saw, and I saw, and I saw, it's just John's vision going from one scene to the next. Chronological order. And it connects John, uh, Revelation 19.11 all the way through the end of chapter 21 as one consecutive narrative. Chapter 19, verse 15, is the promise that Jesus will rule. Chapter 21-4 is the fulfillment of the promise. The same promise made all the way back in Deuteronomy. The same promise made to all of the prophets, and we didn't get to look at a lot of them. The kingdom is present, is spoken about from Genesis all the way through to Revelation. Does that make sense? Okay. Next week, we're going on to the Gospel of Mark. As many of you know, uh, Brinson Phrase is teaching Mark to the youth, so he's going to come up next week and teach the survey of Mark. And then I will be back two weeks from today, and we will begin on the Gospel of Luke. So please be here for Brenton. It should be a good time. Okay? Can you give a handout of those notes? Yes, I can send those out. Okay. All right. Let me pray, because I'm sorry I kept you late. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the clarity of your word. We thank you for the promises that you have made, and you have made those through Christ. And we just ask that you would help us to focus our hearts and our minds on him during our worship this morning and that you would find it pleasing and acceptable. And we ask this in his name. Amen.